The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab number 354 for Monday, September 19th, 2011. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in some questions, you send in some tips, we provide some answers, and we share it all together here in a little mix that helps us all learn something new. For, here from Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Brown. Outstanding. And we're back for another splendid week. I think. It's going to be a splendid week. How could it not be? It's, I it's think like so. almost fall, and uh, it's a little crisp in the air, and I like that. That's a good thing. Uh, you know, let's dive right in here. David... We've got a couple of questions about this. Uh, David writes, I've upgraded to Lion on my MacBook. All seems okay. Some things seem to be improvements and some I'm not so sure about. But recently I've discovered something odd in the way that Keynote and Pages and Numbers, I suppose, handle files. Apparently now they want me to be able to look for old versions of files created by these programs as though I am surfing Time Machine. They mentioned being able to re revert to saved versions of files in the file menu. This may or may not make things better. What I really don't understand, though, is what is the simple way to make a change to a document and give it a new file name? For years now, we've all used Word or Excel or WordPerfect or recently Pages and so on to create and edit documents of all kinds. We know the shorthand way to do things. Historically, there has always been a command called Save As something distinct from save, allowing us a new file name to a to assign a new file name to a document and save it under that name in addition to the existing document. I do this all the time in my job. It's very common for me to create a new folder with the documents and slideshows I'll need for a specific project. I will name everything I use for that project with the appropriate name so I know what it is tied to. The next time I have a similar project, though, I can zip through and find an old document with most of what I'll need to print or to prot or to project, I could then open it up, make a few changes I need and save as to give the newer change version, a specific name. How do I do this in lion? John, you want to, uh, you want to take this one and, and we'll, wow, we'll pass it back and forth as well. I will start with it. So this is absolutely a result of OS 10 lion introducing an, a new feature, a versioning feature. Right. I actually found, which we'll, we will of course link to, an article in their knowledge base called OS 10 Lion about autosave and versions. And what he's seeing is a direct result of this. And also that some of the, some of the first applications to support this are preview as he noticed, iWork, work and text and edit. Right. Exactly. So what he's seeing is a result of this. And unfortunately, if you're used to the old paradigm where you would have save, which of course would save whatever you're working on and save the latest version. I guess in a sense of version, it really wouldn't be a version. It would just overwrite the old, whatever was there before, but now kind of sneaking around in the background is this, is this versioning functionality in OS 10. Now to answer his question directly, how to do a save as, because of course that option is not in the menu anymore. And, and based on, the little research that I did, because I, I really haven't 
used these apps that much to, to run into this problem. And that I, you know, I still use word for the most part to do my word processing and it has not yet embraced this functionality. I would say the best way for him to duplicate the save as functionality is that there will be now in the file menu, a duplicate, I believe it's in the file menu. Now a duplicate option. And if you say duplicate and then you say, say, so duplicate, what you will see is it will create a duplicate, of course, of the document that you created. Now, again, this is kind of weird. But if you say duplicate and then you say save, you will then be prompted for a new file name. And, and from what I can see, that is effectively the same functionality as doing a save as. So you open a document, you say duplicate, you say save, you then save it with a different file name. That's your new document that you can start branching off of. So to answer directly, that that is how he, I, I believe that's the best way to get the equivalent of a save as that you were used to in the older application paradigm. You with me on that? I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I have a different methodology, though, and it's one okay. that I've used Excellent. for one that I've used for years. Um, and, and Lion yeah. did introduce something interesting into this, but it doesn't change my workflow at all. Uh, I gave up on save as a long time ago because uh, really, yeah, for safety's sake, because there were many occasions uh, where I would open up a document like he's talking about, make some changes to it with the intention of using save as to save it as a new file name and, and not overwrite the original. Invariably, however, my habit of hitting command S regularly to uh, ensure that I saved my work. Uh, would cause me to overwrite the original file long before I ever thought about using save as. So my workflow, uh, therefore, became if I wanted to do something similar where I had a document that I just wanted to modify into something new but keep the old copy, is in the finder, I would highlight it and hit command D, which is the same as file duplicate, and uh, and make a copy in the finder. I would then rename it there right in the finder with whatever I wanted that to be and open that copy up. That way I'm totally safe. I know that I, you know, user error is not, or user habit, if you will, uh, is not going to cause me to overwrite my original file. And, and that works fine. You know, that, that, that methodology of course works fine in lion, but what's interesting. And I think we'll talk about this in the next question a little bit is that uh, lion also to prevent you from doing exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, by default, locks files two weeks after the last edit. So if I happen to have a file from last month or last year that I opened up uh, and I went to save it, it would say, hey, this file's locked. Do you want to unlock it and save it, uh, and it, it you know, over, overwrite essentially, or do you want to do a save as? And, uh, and so that also happens with the copy I make. So if, even if I make a copy in the finder, because it's still dated, uh, whatever the date of it was, I still get that lock message and I have to say, oh yeah, yeah go ahead and overwrite. But, uh, but, but there is that, that functionality there and you can set that to as short as one day. Uh, so perhaps there's, you know, a new methodology that you, that one could use, uh, again, this is not for every app. It's only for apps that support this new versioning in Lion. And of course, pages, numbers, and Keynote are uh, are among the few that currently do. So, so that's my right. that's how I'm, I do it. Okay, I'm I'm gonna hope that at some point we 
we see this feature in OS 10 evolve because the model now where you maintain the same, uh, I don't think what they're doing now, which is you have the same file name, but you have multiple versions and you can manually save at any point. You could, you could do a manual save and it'll save a new version, but I don't think it lends itself to a workflow that where you're branching off of a core document. If you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I'm hoping they evolve this or, or there, well, there are already document management systems out there that, that do this already. So, so I understand what Apple is trying to do, but I think it's very, it, it doesn't lend itself to certain workflows right. again in that if you, you start with a template and then you want to save versions for a certain project of, yeah, I think the best way to, as I mentioned, is to say duplicate, do a save as, and that'll that'll create your branch, and it'll be evident in the in the file name. I mean, I do this for example, you know, like my resume. I'll have different versions. I will have them saved with, okay, this is the June version, version yeah. one, and I'll put it in the file name, and then I'll have the July version and the August version. Yep. Anytime I make a little update, and they're all distinct individual files. And again, I don't think it would lend itself to the versioning system in OS 10 because it, I, I don't know if it offers the, the level of control or the granularity to do what uh, I think a lot of us want. You to should do. test it out. Actually, what you're describing is exactly what that's for. I, I think it would work really uh, well for you. But it, but I, 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 I could see it working and that it would, it would maintain the flow and that I could see it in a timeline, which as some may know, you're able to, you can view in kind of a time machine view. That's you can right. see all the versions, very similar to time machine. You can see your document and then you can go back and forth. I guess the only thing that I do is that I'll typically, and I suppose you could do this in that view. So maybe, maybe it's just a different way of thinking, but what I'll typically do also when I do it in word is I'll change the footer of the document to have the new file name. Then now that I think about it. I don't see why the versioning system couldn't, Right. incorporate that. So I'd go to the footer, say, okay, this is now the July or August or September version yep. and then say save. And then I'd be able to browse it. So, so now that I think about it, you're right. I just wouldn't see a distinct file. They would all be the same file name. And, that, and that's a scary thing. View. That's a scary thing for someone who's been using computers for a long time and is used to manually managing all this stuff because yes. there's a level of yes, control that comes with you doing it the way you're currently doing it. And you give that up to the OS as soon as you buy into the versioning system. Not that it's a bad thing. It's just it's a you know, you got to you got to get right. over that. Right? Well, I don't get the comfort. I mean, yeah, right. as you point out, I get the comfort now of seeing in the finder distinct files with different file names. Now I only see one file or with the with the way they're they're doing it now. You see one file and then you have to rely on the operating system doing the versioning properly Yeah, for you. Yeah. And, and maybe it's just something uh, we all we all need to get used to. But if yeah. you don't want to, again, duplicate, save, and, and you can do it the old way. Yep. Or duplicate in the finder. But there, there you go. Yep. Same same general premise. All right. Jessica has a question that's related here. She says, I'm having a strange issue with pages under Lion. I first noticed it yesterday while working on a homework assignment for one of my college classes. I opened the document that I'd previously created and went to work on it, but I found I couldn't write in it, nor could I delete any text from it. I could not copy or paste from it either. I went to the versions menu and made sure the document wasn't locked. I even locked and unlocked it again just to be safe and nothing worked. 
I had no way of manipulating the text in the document, so I ended up opening a new pages document and retyping the text into the new document. But it's not just happening with this one file. It's happening with all pages documents. Every time I create a new one, quit pages and go to work on it again, I can't write in or edit the text in the document. I've tried hitting command option Q in quitting pages, which closes all windows and forces it to open fresh without reopening documents. And that's a good little aside. Uh, I've started my system and repaired permissions. I'm not sure what else to try other than reinstalling pages. If I go back to a previous version of the document, it does the same thing. Okay. Uh, so uh, your gut is right. you you know, this new versioning thing, Jessica is what I would have, have looked at, uh, to check this out as well, because it seems like it sure seems like it would be related to this. And one place to go that you didn't mention is if you go into system preferences, choose time machine and go to options, uh, there is a checkbox there that says, and then we talked about this in the last question. Uh, it says lock documents uh, two weeks after last edit. And you can change that two weeks, as I said, uh, from anywhere uh, short uh, on the short end to one day uh, on the long end to one year. But you can also uncheck that and have it not auto lock documents at all. And for the sake of troubleshooting here, I would uncheck that hit OK and get out of the system preference pane then launch pages and try this with a fresh document. See if that's causing it. Uh, it shouldn't be, of course, but at least this will help narrow down where your problem is. Uh, the other thing to remember is that a permissions repair repairs permissions at the system level. Uh, it repairs permissions for operating system components and sometimes applications, depending on how they're registered with the OS. Rarely, uh, does it go and change permissions in your user folder? So, and, and we talked about this in a, in a recent show, but it, it's important to know that repair permissions is not going after every folder throughout the system. It does not pretend to know how you want your documents folder organized. So uh, I would also check your documents folder and, uh, and see if you, you know, if, if you check the permissions on your documents folder and also on the individual files that you're having problems with, do a get info either on the folder or on the file or both and check the permissions, which are usually at the bottom of the get info window. Uh, you may, you may have a problem there. This is a weird one though, for sure. And, and also check, you know, barring that check the console log. That's uh that's me exhausting my initial list anyway of, of troubleshooting. Do you have any more thoughts on this one, John? No, I'm with you. Uh, get info, sharing and permissions on the bottom of the screen. And at the very least, what you should see is you, the user or your user account. And it should have your name and in parentheses me. And the privilege should be read and write. And anything beyond that, I think, is inconsequential. So if that's not set or it's set to a value other than read and write, then that, that would certainly be the, the reason that you're not able to get to that. But I, I suspect, as, as you, Dave, that it, it's something to do with this versioning and maybe the threshold is, is set too short, so it's locking the document when... when they should be able to unlock it, right? Uh, in theory, yeah, if that's, if that's the problem. That's right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's a wacky one. All right, our first sponsor for this show is Gazelle. Uh, if you go to gazelle.com, they're a service that will buy your used gadgets from you and they make it really easy. And, and in my 
opinion, fun to, uh, to do this. Cause what you do is you go and you, you visit gazelle.com and you type in whatever you've got. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's an iPhone, maybe it's your iPad, maybe it's an old MacBook pro and you put it in there and they ask you some questions to figure out exactly which model you have as well as the condition of it. And then, uh, they'll tell you what they'll pay you for. And, uh, and what's cool is then they typically, in most cases, uh, assuming the product is worth, uh, you know, more than a minimal amount, uh, they'll even send you a box or at least provide you with a shipping label and they'll cover the shipping. And, uh, and then they'll evaluate it. And assuming that uh, it matches the specs, they send you your money. Uh, and if it doesn't, they give you the option of either getting it back or getting whatever they think it's worth. When you get your money, you can get it by check or PayPal or uh, if you choose an Amazon gift card, they'll actually give you 105% of the value of it, which is pretty darn cool. Uh, and of course, you could even take that value and donate it to charity, which is uh, another nice thing to do. And it gets rid of the product for you as well, which isn't a bad thing. Uh, if you're upgrading to a new iPhone and, you know, that iPhone 5, uh, the, the rumor mill is churning up. So it's got to be coming Uh you know, this is the perfect place to unload your old iPhone four. So, uh, so keep gazelle in mind, check it out, have some fun with it as you're digging through and doing your kind of fall cleanup as you're coming back in the house from the summer. And I, uh, you notice that some stuff has piled up and you don't want it around cluttering up your house for the fall and the winter. Uh, go ahead and put it on gazelle and see what, uh, see what they'll give you for it. And, uh, and you know, you'll have some fun with it. Maybe wind up with a little bit of extra cash, maybe some Amazon bucks that you can use for the holidays. But uh, but you can get rid of that stuff you don't need and uh, and Gazelle will help you with that. Gazelle dot com is the place to go. And with that, John, I think it's time to hear what Doug has to ask here. I think. Hello, John, Dave and possibly Pilot Pete. It's Doug from Toronto. Longtime listener. It's my very first question. I'm currently using a 2008 Mac Pro. It's about my fifth Mac. Uh, it's running Lion, and while I've pulled out all the classic apps, there's probably 10 years of cruft in libraries and preferences and stuff. I'm getting a new iMac in a couple of weeks. I'm trading in the Mac Pro at the same time, so the usual migration assistant uh, routine might be a bit awkward. My Mac Pro is backing up on my time capsule, and I also have a two terabyte second drive in the Mac Pro, and that's actually enough room to hold all my current information. What's my best option? Should I find a way to keep the old and new machines together long enough to do a traditional migration assistant? Uh, can I restore from my time capsule safely? I've I've heard read some bad things about that, or or is the is there a creative and geeky way of using the two terabyte internal drive, uh, which wouldn't necessarily be sold with the the Mac Pro? So I, I can I copy files over, take out the internal drive, mount it in something, and use that as part of the restoration process. What's well, my best bet? Uh, here comes my email. So I will cut you off, Doug. All right. So, uh, John, this is a this is a good question. So, so many. You know, the thing is, there there is a wealth of options here to do this, Dave. Right. I, I would choose the safe option. Now, in theory, uh, mm -hmm. 
he could and let's assume that that he does need to not have the two computers in his home you know or in in the same place right so he's got to get himself totally fully prepared for this migration before that mac pro leaves and before the new computer arrives so uh certainly a time machine backup to me is is one way of doing it and migration assistant will work from that assuming yes. all as well right mm-hmm. But also a time machine, a, a, a clone, maybe you clone it with super duper or carbon copy cloner or something like that uh, to your two terabyte drive uh, would also be a perfect uh, source for your migration. And I like to have a backup. So in this case, since your Mac Pro is leaving, you're exposed because if all you have is your time machine, you're done. Because you don't you don't have a backup anymore. It's your only source of the data. So I would clone it onto the two terabyte drive, and and then choose either one. It doesn't really matter. You're probably faster doing it from the clone, the migration, but maybe not. Maybe mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. I, it depends on. There's a lot of other factors there, but uh, but I, that's what I would do. I I definitely make sure I had two copies of that before it left. I concur. Anything to add, John? Well, let me think here because, you know, the options in Migration Assistant, last I did this, are numerous. So, yes, you can either do a target disk mode type migration where you, you link the two machines together with uh, either target disk mode or, or I would think gigabit Ethernet would probably be your best bet here to get the, the, the highest speed transfer. Sure. So that's one. And I've done that. I actually did that with the, you know, when I migrated uh, from my mom's old iBook G4. <laughs> to the MacBook with the, uh, of course, with the Intel processor. And that, unfortunately, though, the old machine was 100 megabits per second, so it wasn't able to take full advantage. But that's your fastest interface that's common between the two machines, as far as I know, would be gigabit Ethernet. So that'd probably be your best bet. Um, I'm with you on the time machine, though, as we've heard, some people have had a unpleasant experience because if your time machine is not in tip-top shape, uh, or like, you know, as I experienced in the past, it may not have all the latest data. So I'm certainly with you in that you want to have not only one copy of the data. So absolutely make a clone of the drive as, as a backup. So, uh, but I would say try working off of the time machine uh, sure. as your, as your first, uh, attempt to bring the data over. And then it sounds like what he's saying is that he has his documents and all that on a separate drive. So, so that, that's a good thing too. Did, did I hear that right? Um, no, I think, or did he just say he just has a two terabyte drive? Okay. I I think his, I think what he said was his two terabyte drive would hold everything that he would need to, to migrate. So, which is good because it, it can provide that backup. Um, and you know, if you don't have an external case for your two terabyte drive, uh, in this case, in this instance, rather that's okay. Right. Because it is, you know, I would clone your internal drive to it and then just have it there. It is a backup. You don't necessarily need access to it uh, unless, as John points out, there's something wrong with your time machine backup. And then you can go and maybe get one of those, you know, newer technology drive adapters or or one of the clones uh, because you can get them for like six bucks on Amazon or something. And and then you can plug the drive in and, and go from there. But but you don't necessarily need to have it ready to go in an external case, you know, unless time is of the essence. And then I would prepare and have your backup ready. But yeah. Yeah. That's the good. only option that I would say would not apply. And actually, in this case, because the drives are different form factors, would, would uh, the only thing I think you wouldn't want to do is try to take the drive from the old machine and put it in the new machine. 
Oh yeah, that wouldn't work. Yeah, and I think the, just a caution, just to bring that up, is that because of the differences in the kernel, I think, especially if you're going from a Mac that has one of the newer i5 or i7 processors versus the uh, older Core 2, is that the kernel is different enough where if you try to put the drive in, you think it would work, but it won't. Yeah, so, are you sure about that? Because uh, I thought- I've, I've heard of issues, especially with, with people trying to do that on macbook pros huh. that have different enough processors uh, i've, I've thought, heard of this i thought an install of say lion was everything needed to boot any mac that lion can boot and and i didn't think there was oh. any i didn't i thought okay. the, the days you, you could of, be right the days of having you know custom kernels built by the installer at in, at installation time were behind us but okay if but if they're back I, that would be good to know well i uh I'd like feedback from people. I've heard of tales where at some during some period of time, if you tried to take a drive with a version of Mac OS 10 that was running on a core two and tried to put that in a machine that was running the i5 or i7, it would not work because it needed a slightly different kernel. Now, maybe they've gotten over that with Lion. Maybe Lion gets around that now. Okay, but I think that was an issue with some versions of, of uh, Snow Leopard because I know I've heard stories of people who tried to just take the drive and say, "Hey, I'll just put the drive in the new machine." Well, yeah, just- going going from older to newer, it I think I think if I'm understanding this right, and please if I'm not, uh, and someone knows better, please correct us. But uh, I believe that's if let's say, and and I'm making up these numbers, so so this is just for the sake of argument here. Uh, but let's say, you know, when the new MacBook Pros came out, 10.6.7 was the most current version of the OS. Well, if you had a prior machine running 10.6.3, then that's really not certified to run on these MacBook Pros, right? You need 10.6.7 or later. And so I think in that case, I would expect there to be some problem because the kernel's not built to boot that chipset. Uh, but And that's all I had heard about was was that but if you if okay. you then took that older 1063 machine and upgraded it or updated it to you know the latest 1067 or whatever then that would work but it, but again mm. if that has changed God, what a disaster it was so nice that when when we did away with the custom kernels that uh I'm hoping we're not back to that with the i series processors likewise I hope okay just thought to bring it up as a as a, a caution if you're you know, jumping ahead too many yeah. generations yeah. That, that this could be an issue. Yeah. You know, I, I will, uh, I will point out again while we're mentioning these I series processors, I mentioned it in, in uh, show three fifty three, which was, was of course a premium episode. Uh, I, I did wind up getting a, an 11 inch MacBook pro uh, with the uh, I seven in it last week. You mean MacBook air. Thank you very much for the clarification. MacBook Air. Though I know you secretly lust for the pro. And you know, I, I want to clarify <laughs> yeah. the reason I, I, now that I think about it, when I listen to the episode again, the reason that I lean towards the pro Dave mm-hmm. is because it still has a plethora of ports that yep. the air does not. The air, if anything, I mean, it's, it's sexy, it's thin, it's light, but it's kind of wimpy on ports. I mean, it has Correct. USB and Thunderbolt and I think that's it. That's, that's where it. the pro, and you know, maybe it's just, a techie thing, but I like having Firewire, USB, uh, Express Card, at least on my machine right now, and and all the options. Well, so, uh, you know, so the audio a- ports and and all that stuff, the audio in and audio out and all that. So, um, 
That, that, that would be the thing you, you brought up a good point about the screen size, but that would be the thing that would make me lean towards the MacBook Pro versus the Air is the, the expandability and interface options. So that's an interesting thing because I thought about that. And, uh, and the, my first thought was, well, it probably won't matter because, you know, this is really just the travel machine, right? But, oh, okay. But then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, with that Thunderbolt port on there, that's like having an express card slot, right? I mean, that Thunderbolt is PCI, right? It's basically a main line to the motherboard. Oh, it's... The right. next generation. And, right. and it's exactly right. But, it, but you know, if I, if I wanted SATA or if I wanted firewire or, or anything like that uh, in theory, now, of course it doesn't exist at the moment. So my options are currently limited, but going forward, I think we're going to see a lot of Thunderbolt to, you know, pick your interface here things and perhaps even interfaces that we're not even using right now. And, and that's the beauty of the Thunderbolt port, right? Because it's not, it's not any one interface. It's not like Firewire or USB where that's it's the end of the chain. Thunderbolt is actually much further toward the beginning of the chain. And, and like I said, it's a main line to the motherboard. It's like it's like the old days of having card slots. Right. I mean, you know, you, you get an interface card. I guess it's not that old because you can do it in a Mac Pro still. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's like having interface cards or the or the express card slot. Uh, but like you said, John, it's the next generation of that. Yeah, because so, ExpressCard has PCIe. It's just a s- slower version. Slow. Right. I forget where it's 1X or 2X, whereas I think the, the Thunderbolt is, what, 16X or, or some 10, equivalent? 10 gigabits a second or some craziness. Yeah, exactly. I think the problem now is that the adapters are somewhat pricey. and Yes. Well, they, and they uh, have to not, be. And not out there yet. The, right. The, uh, yeah, of course, once once they come out in volume, then then they'll be... I, I think they're still going to be pricier than a Firewire or USB cable because there's logic in the adapter and in, in the cable. Right. I mean, it, it's an adapter. It's not just a cable. I mean, if you're going to plug right. that thing into a drive, it's got to do some sort of smarts uh, at some point in the chain to get from, you know, essentially motherboard language to USB or Firewire or SATA or whatever. And I realize I'm oversimplifying here, but, you know, that's that's how I tend to roll. All right. So, Where but anyway, we? we got on a track. <laughs> we did. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, questions about the air and that's, I just wanted to mention it in this show too. So, so that you, the listener knew that, uh, that we have one of these in the mix here and, and that I'm using it regularly. And, and in short, I love it. And it also made it very clear to me why we have full screen mode for apps like mail and Safari and lion, because swiping between those and not having to deal with the menu bar and the dock and all of that stuff is beautiful. So, I will. Uh, I'm sure. We'll, I'm sure we will talk more about this as, as time moves on. But now it's time for John's question, which is also about migration. Listener John, of course, not Mr. Braun. John writes, "I've got a, and this is a similar setup, different question. I've got a Mac Pro uh, with its four drive bays filled. One of them is a two terabyte Time Machine drive." An Airport Extreme model uh, one that can use the spare USB hard drive I also have. And I have a new three terabyte external USB hard drive. What I would like to do is copy the present two terabyte time machine drive to the new three terabyte drive and have it continue to be used on the Airport Extreme. The airport is hardwired to my network via Ethernet, as is the Mac Pro. I want to be able to see the past history on the time machine. So essentially what he wants to do is take the... 
data that's on the two terabyte drive connected directly to his Mac and copy that time machine data in a usable way to his airport extreme, which is going to have a three terabyte drive hanging off of it. Now, the issue with this here, John, is, as you know, and many of our listeners might know, is that time machine has two ways of storing data. One is what I'll call raw. And when you have a drive connected directly to your Mac, it will by default, just pump the data right onto that drive. Uh, if you are connected to a drive over the network, however, Time Machine first creates a sparse bundle and then into that pumps all the data for your backup. So what you've got to do, John, is get your data from the two terabyte drive in what I'll call raw format and dump that into a sparse bundle in such a way that Time Machine is going to be happy looking at it. And that's what gets tricky. Uh, How? Because as far as I know, the data is pretty much identical, but it's in a different wrapper. But, you know, I'm sure you're going to suggest a way that one can do this without destroying everything. Well, that's it. It it, it is. It's the same data, but but you need to tuck it inside this wrapper of the sparse bundle. But A, the sparse bundle needs to be built properly. And B, the data needs to be moved properly. And this data is really wacky the way it works. Um, and and it, it, it's it got hard links all over the place that, you know, if you look at your time machine backup, there are folders and folders and folders. And it looks like the thing is probably 25 times the size that it actually is. And that's because it appears for all intents and purposes that there are multiple copies of it, that every folder on your backup is a full backup, but that's not the case. Most of what's right. in there is just all links to one file that's unchanged. Because uh, that would be a huge waste. I mean, you certainly could. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, right. Time Machine certainly could take a snapshot of the entire contents. But yeah, obviously, that would be a, an amazing waste. Right. Which is why you don't see it backing up, you know, gigabytes every time. It only does the deltas. But yeah, as you're pointing out, it, it will cleverly embed links to. Uh, rather than the entire file, it will actually have links. But yeah, to replicate that stuff or to manually try to do that is, is, is crazy. It's crazy. If you just used a finder copy, if somehow you created this sparse bundle, I'm <laughs> going to tell you that, and then did a finder copy, it would copy them as though there were 20 different copies of, of all of this data. And, it, and of course, you, your three terabyte drive wouldn't be nearly large enough to store all that. So uh, what you have to do, and we'll put a link. There's a There was a, a great little how-to on uh, a site called unlikelywords.com, uh, posted several years ago, two and a half years ago, but it, it's still relevant. Uh, what you, the, the, the process is this, uh, and I definitely recommend visiting the site and following the steps so you don't miss anything. It's much easier read, but in a general sense, and for everyone out there, the process is this first, you've got to create this sparse bundle. And then second, you've got to dump the data into it. We've, we've established that. So to create the sparse bundle, the best way to create it in the right way is to let time machine create it. So connect the three terabyte drive to your airport express, uh, or airport extreme, my apologies. And, uh, and then start a backup there, point time machine to it, say change disc, start a backup there and watch the drive, take a look at it. And you'll see at some point early on in the process, it will put the sparse bundle out there. After that, cancel the backup. Now you've got this sparse bundle created and time machine's going to be happy with it. Why? Because time machine made it. Number two, you got to dump the data in there. And to that, we turn to our friend, super duper, 
And, uh, and, and it, and from there it's pretty much a slam dunk except for waiting for the data to move across the network, which is, which is fine. I mean, you're, you're wired up with ethernet, so that's going to be faster than whatever interface you're using for the drive, which is USB or USB two. Uh, and that should work just fine, but follow the steps. Uh, although you probably could take what you just heard and do it. Uh, you're better off just following the steps so that you're, you're sure not to mess anything up. And then that should do it for you. So it is doable. Of course, this path uh, of, of moving and copying your data over is I'm sure not endorsed by Apple, but, uh, but it is endorsed of course by us, I think, although I've never tried it. So maybe we shouldn't be endorsing that, John. Sounds good to me though. I no, trust yeah. it. I trust it. All right. Uh, let's move to Robbie here. An interesting one. Robbie says, a recent experiment on the Mac stumped me. I received an email with a PDF that was presumably created on a Windows machine. When opening the PDF in preview or quick look, the file contains what appear to be many garbled characters that make this legal document unusable, or so I thought. Oddly enough, when I print the document, the printed document looks as intended while still showing up garbled on the screen. To troubleshoot this problem, I open the document on a Windows 7 machine where the file looks and prints perfectly. Is it possible that OS 10 uses a decoding mechanism that is incompatible with this file or could the software used to create the document be blamed? Considering this is a PDF, I'm very surprised at this behavior. All right, John, why don't you take this one? I've got some thoughts about this, but I will save them until after I do too. go. All right. So number one, I blame windows. Uh, let's, let's remember this folks that John blames windows. No, cause I, I have a completely different angle. No, 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 this. no, I'm not gonna, I'm not, no, the, I'm, Kind of kidding. Oh, all right. No, I mean, we're the Mac geek app. We got to blame Windows, mm-hmm. right? It, it, sure. It, no, it's, it, it's easy to blame Windows. No, here, here are my observations with PDF files and the Mac. So number one, there could be a number of things that are going on here. So number one, as we've seen in the past, Dave, preview is a wonderful utility, but preview may not always get it right. It's not 100%. No, it, but it's it, fast. It's, it is fast and it comes free with the OS. So one thing I'm going to offer. So one, it could be a preview issue. Yep. And so, quick look and preview use the same engine to display this stuff. Correct. Right. So my one suggestion would be try to use. Now, some people will cringe at this suggestion, but I'm going to suggest that it's not flash, but it's Adobe reader. What I would suggest is trying to use the Adobe reader because, you know, I suspect that when he opened it on windows, he may have been using the Adobe reader. Right. So try the Adobe reader. Uh, the, the other thing that I think is the problem, Dave, is that if it's going between windows and the Mac, now one problem is that a PDF can do one of two things. It can embed the fonts in the PDF, or if the fonts are not embedded in the PDF, then it's left up to the operating system to find or the PDF engine to find the fonts. And sometimes you may not get a perfect match, especially if you're going between platforms. So what may happen is they may pick a font, especially if the font that's specified in the PDF does not exist on the system. It may fall back to what it think is, thinks is the closest. And you and I have run into this, that this actually happened. We, we did have a case a number of shows ago where this happened, where it's yep. like, oh, this font doesn't exist. I'm going to pick the other one. And, and in, in the case we found, actually, the font didn't even appear. It appeared like, yeah, See, it picked a font that was not visible. So my suggestion also 
would be that if there is a font substitution occurring, that there could be the issue. There shouldn't be. It, I realize that there could be. Shouldn't. Yeah. I mean, it should. Because it should you would be think embedded it should in the def- PDF. Correct. But say it's a font that. I think what it does, it tries to find a font that has similar characteristics. So if it's a serif font or a sans serif font, it'll try to find something kind of neutral like Courier but or even, Times. Is that true even with a PDF? I mean, I thought the whole concept behind PDF was that the font was buried inside the document. And you well, no, we found to, this. Oh, that's well, right. We found this. Yeah, well, no, the right. font the font can be embedded. Right. But, but the font but can are, also be specified as a system font. And the there, problem is, yeah. if it's specified as a system font that doesn't exist. Yeah, you're toast. Then true. either it could just throw up an error saying, I don't have font, whatever. Or, you know what? I, I, I understand the characteristics of this font. So I'm going to find what I think is the closest match and hope I get it right. Because when, when, when we saw a screen snapshot of this. I mean, it got a lot of the letters and stuff right, but a lot of the spaces and all that had these weird characters. So that's why I'm wondering if it may have been a font substitution issue. Um, Of course, that begs the question, why did it print it properly? And the thing is, maybe the correct font was in the printer. Oh, you know, um, well, this is another dynamic, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is sometimes. uh, Yeah. And also, I mean, the other thing is that when you send a document to a printer, you could either embed the whole bitmap or the whole image could be rendered in the computer and then sent to the, to the printer. Or you could tell the printer, hey, by the way, if you got this font, well, why don't you draw on your fonts inside of you? So that's why I think when he printed it, it nah, could have been. I, now, the thing is, we didn't get the documents, so we don't know what fonts specifically. It'd be great if you could send us the documents so we could analyze it. Because we had a problem in the past where we were able to tear apart the PDF and really drill down on this. Now, I understand it may be a sensitive legal document, so you don't want to send it to us. Sure. You can totally trust us, Dave. Well, you can, uh, but <laughs> but I can also appreciate why you wouldn't choose to. Well, just for forensics, I sure. mean, it'd just be awesome to rip apart this document. I mean, I, I was hoping it would have been attached. Now, the, the final suggestion I'm going to give, and then I'll hand it to you, Dave, is that there may be some problem with the fonts on your Mac. And in order to do this, we've mentioned it before, we'll mention it again, is you want to run Fontbook. Fontbook is a wonderful utility Apple includes, and one of the things that it has is a method. I'm going to, oh my gosh, who, who, who's this again? Who, who we got here? Robbie. Okay, let me yes, find it here Robbie. because I have the specific. So what you can do is if you go into Fontbook, if you highlight all your fonts and you go to File and Validate Fonts, it will rip through all your fonts and if the font's cool, you'll see a little green check mark. If there's a problem, you're going to see the little yellow caution sign. And then if you dig in, it'll tell you what the problem is. For the most part on my system, I found the problem was duplicate fonts, where there was more than one occurrence of a font, which could be sure. bad. So uh, those and, and the, the final thing I mentioned is that also Adobe Reader, if you open an Adobe Reader, if you go to the file menu, properties and fonts, it will show you all of the fonts in that document. I couldn't find a way to do this in preview, but that's another thing. If you look at the fonts, it will list specifically whether it's an embedded font or a non-embedded or you know, otherwise a system font. Right. So lots of variables here, but I think, I think I, I covered most of, uh, most of the things you could try to, to try to narrow this down or figure out why it's not uh, displaying properly on the Mac. I'm going to go with Occam's razor and, and I'm going to blame preview Uh, or, or what what I no really, or what the, do you you think it would show up properly in Adobe reader? Yes. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I've seen this before. And again, it's just because preview Apple had to, I'll use the phrase, cut some corners 
they did again, they didn't do a full PDF rendering implementation here, but they did their own PDF. So they're not using, you know, Adobe's they've built their own. It's totally optimized. Uh, but that comes with some incompatibilities. They're edge cases, but you know, you, I think you've got one here, Robbie. And that, I think that's all it is. Uh, you could try opening it in something like PDF pen, but I think PDF pen uses the systems PDF rendering engine. So I don't think that's going to help, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, but, but Adobe reader is, it's probably as far as just opening it. Of course you can't do any editing, uh, there like you can in PDF pen, but, uh, Adobe reader would be the, the place to, to do it. And I, and I think it's going to open just fine, especially because it printed just fine. So, all right. Um, you know, we've got a, a couple of tips from, uh, well, we've got one tip from a previous show. We've got some great cool stuff found that I definitely want to get to. Uh, so John, let's jump to, uh, let's jump to tips here and, uh, and we'll play the first one from, uh, an anonymous caller and we will maintain their an- anonymity because we don't know who they are. Hi, Dave and John. Um, speaking about aperture, uh, aperture sometimes does not appear in the desktop screensaver window in Snow Leopard. Um, to get it back, go to your aperture library, show package content, go to iLife sharing, and whack the file aperture's database time stamp. And this will bring it back. And every so often, every month or so, it will lose its way again. I would have to do this. And Aperture will appear in the window again. Thank you. Ah, no, but thank you. So that answers uh, the question we had there in in show number 352. Yep, where uh, where we were having problems. George was having a problem building, uh, you know, he he couldn't see his sources. And and John, you walked him through a bunch of steps. But it seems like uh, whoever this anonymous caller is, thank you so much because... uh, because you're you're obviously experiencing it on a regular basis and uh, yeah and and solving it so just be prob- probably careful. a bug full be because <laughs> I I, I uh, tip of the hat to suggesting that you open you know choose the open package contents which yeah. of course both the uh, most of the library files at least the aperture and the iPhoto library files are actually not really libraries they're packages which is basically a folder full of other folders full of other folders and files right. Just be careful when you're in there that only touch that. Don't touch anything else. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, and that's, that's the impressive part is, is uh, whoever you are, you went through and, uh, and found this. I mean, it, you know, a lot of these solutions and this one's one of them seem very simple and they are. And, and as I tell people all the time, I have a favorite saying, which is everything's simple if you know what to do. Uh, and, and maybe not everything, but certainly in this case, very simple, but I don't know how you figured out that removing just that one, you know, needle in the haystack solved this problem, uh, which is just, it's awesome. So that's what this show is great for. Tri- We've got this trial and error. <laughs> yeah. But lots of error, right? You know, that's, you probably munged up your, uh, aperture library a couple of times or got lucky on the first try, but whatever it is, the mind, the mind trust, the brain trust here of the uh, Mac Geek Cab community comes to the rescue. So thank you very, very kindly for sending that in. That's awesome. That's one of those for the record books. All right. Uh, John, you, we've got a little bit of time left here. Uh, we've got quite a bit of cool stuff found and some of it's great. Uh, in fact, all of it's great. Uh, do you want to tell your tale of woe this week or do you want to save it till next week? I think I can condense it. Okay. So, yeah, you know, ahead. sometimes I get verbose, but I will not get verbose. <laughs> no, in this no, you? No, 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 never. <laughs> so, um, as you recall, I am reevaluating a SSD 
because when I looked at it last, I had Snow Leopard and this particular SSD, which is the uh, Sam uh, Samsung 470 series. I believe it's the Samsung. Okay. Uh, when I looked at it last, I noticed some performance issues, especially writing to it. And the problem was that Snow Leopard does not support trim, which is a way for hard drives to SSD drives, SSD drives to uh, or, or operating systems to help SSDs optimize write efficiency. I think is a way to encapsulate that. That's a great way to say it. Yep. T-R-I-M. No. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't stand for anything. It doesn't. No, it's just trim. Oh, I didn't realize uh, that. That's awesome. basically it's the OS saying, hey, you know, I just erased files here. Uh, could you guys kind of clear things out? So when I write to you again, I'm going to get the best performance. And the problem is Lion supports it. But the thing is, Lion at this point only supports it for Apple SSDs. And this is, of course, not an Apple SSD, although Apple SSDs may use components from this vendor. This is a drive from them. Right. And you so, can test just just as an aside to, to make this longer than than we promised. Uh, if you go to the, uh, well, you go to system profiler and you can get there in the utilities applications, utilities folder, or various other methods. But, uh, but you can see this if you go into hardware and then serial ATA and then select your SSD drive. And, uh, well, you don't have to, you can see them all listed at one, but you will see, uh, actually, I guess you do have to select the SSD drive. So you're going to see medium type and it should say solid state. Now, some third party SSDs don't even appear as solid state here. And if that's the case, then what John's going to talk about is irrelevant. But if it does say solid state, then the next line is trim support and it'll either say yes or no. So that's how you check to see if your SSD is supported here. Um, and, and one more aside, some SSDs that don't support trim and OS 10 have their own way of managing this. And so it doesn't matter. You're, you're, you're still going to be okay. But that said, go ahead, John. Right. So then I found some utilities that would modify a kernel extension to give you trim. And they would basically eliminate the check for the string. I think it's Apple SSD. So that in theory, any SSD will, will benefit from trim support under Lion. And I believe the extension was IOAHCIFamily.kext, or it could have been one of the other ones, but I think it was the IO family of kernel extensions. So this utility changed that. And then at a point a little down the road, I decided, you know what? I want to revert back to the original uh, kernel extension. Now, one of the utilities I used in theory created a backup of this. But when I tried to copy it back to my library or system library extensions folder, the system said, oh, this is garbage. I don't like this. I'm not going to let you do this. It asked for my admin password. But then it said, I'm not going to let you do this. I'm like, oh, great. So, of course, I made a full backup. So what I did is restored it from the backup I made of my system before I, I migrated to the SSD and everything appeared to be working okay, but then at some point in the future, I'm not sure what caused this when I tried to boot my system with the new kernel extension that I copied over. All of a sudden, well, normally when you boot your Mac, you're going to see a picture of the, the Apple and right. the little spinning progress wheel. Well, right. here's the, 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 what happened that made me unhappy. All of a sudden, the Apple turned into a circle with a line through it. I've seen that. And, and to, that's bad. That means the OS, <laughs> that means the OS is, is there. Un it sees, well, it sees the drive, but for whatever reason, it's not happy about wanting to boot. Right. So then first thing I did after that is I'm like, okay, why are you not happy? So I booted up in verbose mode, which I think is command V. 
And it basically came up and said, waiting for drive, waiting for drive, uh, some message like that. So, so when you put up in verbose mode, it will list all of the text that you normally don't see that the, the, the uh, kernel or the OS uh, at a low level is generating. And basically, it just, got, it just sat there and got stuck. And I'm like, hmm, let me think about what I did to the system recently that would cause this. I'm like, you know what? I changed the kernel extension. And then just, I think it was just instinct. I'm like, well, you know what? I know this in the back of my mind, Dave, that the system normally caches the kernel extension. So rather than loading all the kernel extensions, in a lot of cases, if the data is not going to change, then why load each individual file? That That's a very discontensive task. Why not just load a cache with all that stuff in there? And I basically stumbled across and I got it right on the first time because I think I've done this before. So what I did is I went to my system library caches directory and there is a directory within that directory called com.apple.kext. Ooh, kernel extension. Dot caches. So I basically deleted that directory, rebooted the system. Everything was great. So you forced it to rebuild that that directory of kernel caches. And instead of loading the old one, it loaded the new one. And everything's good to go. Now, the thing is, in the past, when I looked in the console, I thought the system was smart enough. If it sees you put, if it sees activity in the extensions directory, it should rebuild that kernel extension cache. Because I know I've seen messages in the console saying, oh, this directory has changed. I better rebuild the cache file. But apparently, in this case, as far as I can tell, it didn't. Now, what I did, I'm almost positive, can be replicated. I'm sure there's a screen in Onyx somewhere that does the same thing. That re- well, I have a question for you. Go. Yeah. Did it actually change the directory or did it edit the kernel cat kernel extension file that's in there? Did it put a new one in there or did it edit the yes. one that was in there? Oh, no. I mean, well, I wiped the directory. So no, 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 no. I mean, I'm trying to figure out why it didn't update the caches automatically. So my question is, did oh, I don't believe it. Uh, if I recall correctly, did not update the kernel cache. No, right. Uh, so my question, I know it didn't. That's why you had mm. this problem. So my question is not, not in the kernel extension cache, but in the kernel mm. extensions folder itself. <gasps> right. Was, did it put a new file in there or did it edit the file, one file that was already there? Or did, or did you edit one file that was already there? Right. How, I, how did, I edited. Okay. So that's file in that directory directly. And that's probably that's why this didn't auto update, because that cache will be rebuilt if the folder changes. Mm. Uh, And and so that means removing something from the folder or adding something to the folder. But editing an item in the folder does not update the timestamp of the folder itself being edited. That's it. Yeah. Therefore, the system did not. And, and I think I had not restarted the system for a while, so right. I didn't notice this. I think I just logged in and logged out or just woke from sleep. Right. So I didn't notice this immediately. Yeah. Now, does now, now that you did this trim support shows up as a yes in system profiler for you? Well, I've, re- I'm doing my testing now. So I wanted to revert to non-trim mode okay. because I want, I want to see the performance of the system. Sure. When the drive is, we'll call it dirty when the cells have not been cleaned up with trim. So you got go to fill it. the drive to do that. It's pretty close to full Good. because this is a, uh, if you recall, I had, well, my, my rotational drive is a 512. Yep. This is a 256. And the thing is oh. on my, on my rotational drive, I had about 200, 
200 something. The, okay. I, I think I only have about 10 gigs left on this thing. So I'm almost certainly running into a situation where the cells are, are getting dirty in that when it's writing when, and, and that's what I want to see. I want to stress this. I want to stress the performance so that when I'm writing to the drive, it's absolutely not taking advantage of trim and it's, it's, it's taking as long as possible. <laughs> right. So check with the manufacturer to make sure that the drive isn't actually oversized internally, because a lot of times that's mm-hmm. what they'll do. Right. And, and give you extra or give the drive the ability to write to extra cells, even though in the finder, you don't see that the drive has extra room. Uh, so oh, that you know okay. what you're actually testing. That's, yeah. We've yeah, had some pretty good. Uh, I've actually been, I've actually been in touch with their people over uh, overseas. Good. Cause they were very interested. They're like, huh? Cause I, I think they, they're uh, more comfortable on the windows side because windows seven, I think explicitly, uh, supports trim right on any ssd whereas uh lion is not quite there yet unless right. you do a hack let's get the so, cool stuff found that was not short but. no it wasn't <laughs> it's was a fun little geeky thing though well for for people exploring the world of ssds or if you have a dirty extensions uh cache yeah, yeah. all right uh back to show 351 we were talking about i think it was 351 maybe it was even 352 uh we were talking about spotlight uh, and how it did not maintain or it did not reorder itself uh, when you chose applications from the menu. And that's a problem. Uh, Kevin wrote in and also called and says he's got a solution. Go, Kevin. Hi, John. Hi, Dave. Uh, it's Kevin from uh, Twitter, t- Coder Kev. And uh, I wanted to let you guys know um, I just finished listening to episode 351, and Joel had a problem with Spotlight not showing the app that he wanted, which I think was Disk Utility. Um, In the Mac App Store, there is a program called Alfred that's a program launcher that you can set to to, uh, open either just applications or documents to or Apple scripts, uh, whatever you want. It's a free app. And uh, I still, even with Launchpad in Lion, continue to use it whenever I need to open like a terminal session or a console session. Um, It's uh, command to open it is even pretty much the same as Spotlight's. It's option space instead of command space. So uh, not a lot of relearning and uh, it it should help him with his specific problem. I think it also learns... um, which ones you use more frequently and defaults to those. Um, so anyway, I hope that helps him. Thanks guys. Love your show. Bye. Thanks Kevin. Yeah. You can check this out at alfredapp.com. And indeed uh, a listener wrote in and about this same thing uh, and said that Alfred does learn. It will reorder like spotlight used to. And uh, it uses spotlights database. It does not build its own like a lot of other launchers do. So you're not doubling up on, uh, on, on having these, you know, databases of, of app names, uh, all listed on your machine. It, it just uses spotlights, but uses it in its own intelligent way. So, uh, so thanks. Yeah. Alfred. Awesome. So iWeb is, uh, is dying. If we are to believe what Apple has explicitly told us and we might as well, uh, but what, what that's going to mean for, well, people like you, John, is that you've got you all your stuff out there on iWeb uh, and it's going to go away come what March, April, sometime next year. Mark, listener Mark says. I found a piece of software that will migrate 
iWeb to WordPress. And it's from Rage Software at RageSW.com. And it's called iWeb to WordPress. And uh, and sure enough, that's what it does. It's 25 bucks. Uh, you can download a trial from them. So uh, so thanks, Mark. I imagine that there's quite a few people that are going to be downloading that trial. Perhaps even you, huh, John? Hmm. Hard to say. All right. You're still there, in denial over this? Pretty much. I'm okay. going to wait until the last minute and panic. Good. That's great. That's no, awesome. I've, actually, I've actually seen one. I, I got to try this, but, but I've seen an article that talks about how to use Dropbox as your new repository for a website or for, Oh, well for pictures, you certainly could. Well, for iWeb, iWeb can export its data to, uh, uh, I think, a flat file format server. Yeah. Server neutral format. So as long as you can find a host, uh, I think you're good. So WordPress is certainly one of them, but, uh, but, but I've seen a number of articles, uh, on how you can use, uh, and I'll link to one or two of them. Uh, cool. but you can use Dropbox to be the host, uh, cause Dropbox, of course you can access with a web browser, right? Right. Right. Yeah. 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 In its own little way. That's true. That's true. Uh, so my, my wife, Lisa turned me on to something today called turntable.fm. Have you ever checked this out, John? No. Okay. So right now, turntable that that's the name of, uh, the, the, the device that used to spin the big discs, right? Exactly. So this is a, the best way I'll describe it, and I don't know what terms they use, is a social music listening service. So uh, what you do. Not another one. No, this is cool. You log in (laughs) to Turntable in your browser. Now, currently the only way you can log in is via Facebook. So you have to have a Facebook account, but they say that they're doing, uh, you know, they're adding more options. But right now, so you log in and then you pick a room to go into. And in that room, music is playing high quality music coming, you know, stereo coming through your your browser, coming through your computer speakers. And there's other people in this room and up to five of those people can be DJs. And then there can just be, you know, countless people listening. And the DJs can either select music from a variety of sources or upload these songs from their own machine to stream to everyone. And uh, and it works. And and I guess you I, I played with it a little bit today. Uh, but it was nice because I had just music on and you can pick a room that has, you know, interest that you're, uh, you like. And you can, as each song plays, you can rate it good or bad. And uh, if enough people rate it bad, then it, you know, that song shuts off and it goes on to the next DJ. Otherwise, I think they rotate DJs song to song or whatever. And uh, and it was really cool. And there's a little chat thing that kind of rolls in the corner. I turned off the sound for that because I wasn't really interested. But uh, but it was nice to just have music going or whatever in the background. And so I dug a little deeper. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm uploading music. I'm streaming it. How is that not different than me being a radio station? And this is a problem because, you know, that sort of violates all kinds of licensing uh, agreements. And what they say is uh, that they need they can only play a maximum of three songs from the same album or four songs from the same artist in any given three hour period. So uh, I checked out a room that was playing all fish songs. Now, uh, most of these were from live recordings that the band is happy to have distributed. And, you know, it's not a problem, but still, you know, this, there's this issue. And so I thought, well, how in the heck is this working? Well, if you go to the FAQ for this room, it says, yeah, you've got to change the artist name uh, in your, you know, before you upload the file. And there were some suggestions on what to change it to, you know, being the the show that it came from or something like that, you know, so that people know what show it was and what date it came from. And uh, and then that mixed it up, of course. 
but uh, but a very cool service and uh, and a very fun little thing. So uh, so I thought that was worth mentioning, and it's free. So check it out, turntable.fm. That was uh, that was my little thing here, John. You had one, right? You found a, a cool thing with AirDrop. Yeah, a number of people. I'll, uh, I'll I'll include a couple of links. But as it turns out, so you and I, Dave, thought that our machines were exempt from AirDrop because Apple. And their line specification says you have to have the late 2008 MacBook Pro or beyond to get airdrop. But apparently there is a hand wave. Now, I think it operates in a mode that is not intended and in that I think it lets you see more machines than you, you should. I think the intent of airdrop is that you're only supposed to see machines near you. Okay. So I think what these hacks do, and it's basically a single, uh, again, I'll link to the articles, but it's a single write to one of these mystical uh, registry keys or uh, plist files that basically says, "All right, enable the network browser to see AirDrop." And on my MacBook Pro right now, Dave, I you know if I look in the uh, what is it, which menu, you know, if I go in the Finder in and the finder. I say "Go," yeah. yeah, well, hey, you know, I see AirDrop. But now this just doesn't make it worth over work over airport for you. It makes it work over Ethernet as well, right? I believe one of the hacks uh, enables it just over wireless. And then another one I found, yes, enables it on, on any network, either wireless or wired. That's so, awesome. Uh, That's what you want. So sure. link to it. The one I'm seeing that you sent me here, just uh, if anybody wants to try and remember, but we will, of course, put it in the show notes, is default, right? Com.apple.network browser, browse all interfaces one to make it true. And, uh, and then you've got to reboot or kill all the kill the finder um, to make it work. And then you set that to zero if you want to false, you know, turn it off. That's pretty cool, man. I, I love the fact that this makes it work over Ethernet because, of course, the two, you know, I've been on a f- buying frenzy, I guess, lately. Uh, we've got the uh, the, you know, the, the iMac and the MacBook Air that I have now, of course, both support uh, airdrop, but I'm not using airport on my iMac. So I have to like turn it on to get airdrop to work that, well, that's silly. So mm-hmm. turned it off. Cool. Awesome. All right. Uh, one last cool stuff found here. How, how's that sound, John from, uh, from Jason, I I'm sure we've mentioned this in the past, but this is a good one to remember. Uh, Jason reminds us that GIMP, uh, G I M P is a free alternative to Photoshop with nearly all the same functionality. And he is right. Uh, and we'll put a link in the show notes to gimp.org uh, where you can get the Mac version of GIMP. Uh, indeed, it is a v- extremely full featured uh, image editor. And it is, it really is a, you know, almost a Photoshop clone. So definitely worth checking out. I, I think it's good stuff. Yeah, the the only weirdness is that it's it's running under X window. Correct. Even on the Mac, I think it does. But but it's still, I think it's still yeah, it's still included. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Hey, I wanted to uh, to mention that here at uh, TMO, we are currently interviewing developers or designers rather for a uh, refresh of the TMO of the MacObserver.com website. And uh, so if you are a designer or a work at a design firm 
Uh, please contact me. You can contact me directly uh, at Dave at MacObserver.com. Just let me know that uh, that you are interested in learning more about what we want to do. And uh, I would love to hear from you because uh, it would be great to bring someone in that is uh, at least yeah. part of the family somehow here. A listener to the show. You all count, of course, uh, as family members. So uh, it would be a great thing to have. So we're, we're, are we going for links compatibility or? Uh, yes, that's right. Links and IE6 is, uh, <laughs> is the whole reason that we're doing this. That's <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, for the uninitiated, links is a text only browser. Yeah. And uh, some sites actually seem to. Uh, I, I think I tried TMO one time. It did a pretty good job. It works okay, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's, not, it's not really on our mandated compatibility list internally here. Yeah. yeah. Or or is IE. <laughs> no, IE6, we happily dropped support for that uh, about a year, maybe a year and a half ago mm. internally. It, it might work, it might not, but we're not going to code to make sure you can see the site in that. So, yeah. yeah. So, Dave, you mentioned how to get in touch with you, but if one wanted to get in touch with you and I at the podcast, right. the, the way I would do that is I would probably send an email to feedback at MacGeekGab.com. You said it, brother. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the right way to email us here for the show. And just so you don't forget, remember that is feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Unless you're a premium member, and then you are allowed to email us at premium. In fact, encouraged to email us at premium at MacGeekGab.com. What and is that, Dave? If you're not a premium member, you can easily become one. Visit MacGeekGab.com. Sign up. It's 25 bucks Cheap. That gets you six months worth of premium. Uh, not only do you have access to the email address, but you've got two extra episodes per month and access to all the archives. And of course, John and I, uh, you have our eternal thanks uh, for supporting us yes. in the show here. So uh, really encourage you to, to sign up if you're a fan of the show here. Not only would we appreciate it, but you do get uh, quite a bit out of that. Uh, we, we, we started it because there were many of you that said you wanted to find a way to support us, uh, but we wanted to make sure we give you something in return. And so, uh, so we put together that. And, and people we said they wanted more. That's right. They said they wanted more episodes. 206-666-GEEK is the way you call us. And Geek John is 4335. And speaking of community, Dave, well, we seem to be a, a growing a, a community of uh, several hundred people now on Facebook. And, and probably not surprising, you go to facebook.com slash MacGeekGab, like us, and you can... Uh, Join in on the fun. That's right. And last but not least, Twitter, of course, uh, Mac Geekab for the show, John F. Braun for him, Dave Hamilton for me, Mac Observer for the Mac Observer, and uh, Pilot Pete is still in the loop here. He's just, he's had a schedule change uh, recently that makes it difficult for him to be here. But uh, we're hoping that we might see him at some point soon. Also on Twitter.com, Visit twitter.com slash Michael Johnston for Michael Johnston. He is the host of the We Have Communicators podcast. He is also the one responsible convert for converting this show into AAC. So we send a big thanks out to Michael. Also, a big thanks out to cashfly.com for providing all the bandwidth for this show. Uh, the podcast marketplace includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, BB Edit from Barebone Software, which is on special right now, PDF Pen from Smile, which you can get a discount using the coupon code GEEK11, G-E-E-K-11. 
Of course, Gazelle.com, as we mentioned, for selling off your old hardware. Blog World Expo is at the beginning of November. Observer VIP is the coupon code that gets you 20% off the registration there. And Observer 5.0 gets you a half-price expo pass. All of this thanks to the Backbeat Media team taking care of everything for us. And, John, I think that's it. We're out of here. This does it for the week. When we come back, I'll be an older man, as will you. (laughs) The little F coming up. At least for me. Have fun and don't get caught. (laughs) 